Good morning. Happy Easter, everyone. So good to be to see you guys here this morning. I want to welcome you to Relevant Faith Church. My name is Mike Womer. I am the lead pastor here at Relevant Faith, and we are excited that you have joined us today. What a what an amazing opportunity we have to worship God and to celebrate the resurrection of His Son Jesus. Amen. It's such a it's such a cool thing to do. It's such an amazing thing to do, and hopefully by the end of today, um, God will have touched you in a way that has changed your life, and um, that's the goal of every, every one of our worship experiences, is that we walk out different than we walked in. So here we are, Easter Sunday. We, are, we have been in the middle of a, ser- a series here at Relevant Faith Church called Four Cups. Four Cups is inspired by a book written by a pastor whom I look up to as, a, as an amazing man, an amazing and gifted teacher, and just, just a wonderful person. His name is Chris Hodges. He pastors um, uh, Church of the Highlands in Birmingham, Alabama, and he wrote a book called Four Cups. And what, the, what this book is based on is the premise of the Passover in the Old Testament as, as it relates to the, the, the Last Supper that we commonly heard of of Christ, but also the Passover as a celebration. It comes from the idea of when the children of Israel were... When Moses asked Pharaoh to set the children of Israel free, and what ended up happening is they ended up sending plague after plague after plague, and, and uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not let them go until ultimately they, they sent the, the angel came and was going to take life away from them for being so disobedient for so long and, 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 and hating God's people. And so with that, the instruction was to take the blood of the lamb which is the animal that was sacrificed, and wipe it and brush it across the doorposts of your home, and then the angel would pass over your home. That's where the idea of Passover comes from. And God made promises to the children of Israel, and so that was, so just a quick review for those of you who haven't seen it. If you're interested in, in catching up with these messages, you can find them on our website, website at rfcpeoria.com. Click on the listen link, and you can listen there. But the very first message we talked about was that there were promises that God made you. And so we figured out that a promise is a is a is a promise is an offer with a guaranteed result. How many of you have been promised something in your life by someone that really did not have much of a guaranteed result? As a matter of fact, the promise was pretty much broken and, and nothing that they said they would do was actually done, right? So but God's promises are what the Bible says, yes and amen, meaning if, if he promised it, it's an absolute, it's certain, it's yes, and then so be it, let it be done as it has been spoken. And so the idea of this four cups is, uh, is based on these promises that God gave to the children of Israel. And so here are the four co- promises, the four core promises you can find are in Exodus chapter 6. This is the passage of scripture for the sermon series itself, and so I'll read it to you. It'll be also up on the screen. The Bible says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So these four four core promises are found here as being... The salvation of, the, of everyone, of, of all of mankind, to set them free, to bring restoration, and ultimately bring 
fulfillment. These are the four promises the children of Israel would recite at the Passover. So just as a quick little illustration, this is what we use when we take communion here. It's a very simple cup and a wafer. And they would have four cups and that they would recite these. They would, they would, they would recite the passage of Scripture when he says, I am the Lord your God and I will bring you out. And they would sip from that cup and then they would pass. And they would do the same thing four times during this passage of Scripture. And that was the way that they would celebrate the Passover. And that was, that was what had power for them. And it's still as relevant today as it was then. There are many Christians that follow the Passover celebration and there are and Messianic Jews who follow the same thing. And these, uh, these promises were something that the children of Israel would hold on to with, with, with like a white knuckle grip because this is after all who God said he was going to do, who he was and what he said he was going to do. And then over the course of, the, of many, many years, the children of Israel would make many, many mistakes and they would still hold on to these promises from God, and God would always deliver. Here's a really cool thing that was very intentional about God. So a lot of people, when it comes to their faith and their walk with Christ, they, they try to say, oh, well, we live under the New Testament and grace. It's nothing to do with the Old Testament anymore. You can kind of just disregard that. And Jesus actually said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And this was part of the fulfilling of the law of God. When it comes to the Passover, here's a, here's a really interesting thought, and I've shared this in our message series. I'm kind of reviewing a little bit for you. But the Passover and then Jesus being called the Passover lamb, here's the correlation between the two. During the Passover celebration, it was very, very intentional, very detailed. God would give specific details to the children of Israel. One of them would be that at 9 a.m., they must sacrifice this perfect lamb. At 9 a.m., the sacrifice for the perfect lamb would take place. And then at 3 p.m., that perfect lamb would be placed in the oven. And then from that, once it was finished, they would eat and then they would share with others. There was no leftovers back then. They didn't have refrigerators to put stuff in or Tupperware. So they had to share. Nothing could go to waste. So they would share this, this, this meal. If you fast forward to Christ, at 9 a.m., Jesus Christ was, ha- was hung on a cross, nails driven in his hands and his feet. He was sacrificed. The same the lamb was sacrificed in the Passover. At 3 p.m., Jesus was taken off the cross and placed then in the tomb. And then, of course, the reason we're even, most, most folks are even in church today around the world is because they're there to celebrate the fact that three days later, that same Jesus was raised from the grave. He appeared to his people, to his disciples, and to others. And one of the final instructions he gave to them is found in Matthew chapter 28, when he said, go into all the world, make disciples of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 18. And so that is the sharing of the lamb. So it's the same. It's an actual, a direct correlation and done intentionally by God. So today and even the next three weeks of this sermon series, as we study each of these four cups, I believe are going to be life changing. And so I believe this is God's greatest desire is for, is, is, it's in the, found in the first promise. It's, if you would, a first step in our faith. It's found in Exodus chapter 6. The first half of verse 6, and the Bible says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. It starts there. It starts with the idea of being brought out. 
Now, if you're sitting here and you have this walk with Christ and you've served Jesus for any length of time, you might think, okay, well, I've already been brought out. But the reality is this bringing out is something that takes place on a consistent and regular basis. Simply because the Bible says we all fall, each day we all fall short of God's glory. Each day we make mistakes. Each day we fail. But his grace is sufficient for anything that we may go through and any mistake that we may make, which is why there's a constant bringing out. I described it in previous messages and even to my family, uh, uh, the devotional in last night's meal, was that, that there's this, this idea of when you give your life to Christ, your spirit has been made perfect in that moment. It's in that moment, it's purity, it's perfect. Your spirit has been made perfect. That's the point of being brought out. But that's not where it ends. The process then begins. So there's this idea that I have been saved, and then there's this process that I am, gonna, I am being saved. Maybe you grew up in the church world, and you understand church lingo. Church lingo would be, that's the process of sanctification in our lives. It's continuous. I refer to it as a journey, because I don't, I'm not a big fan of speaking Christianese if you will. And so I consider it, it's, it's the journey of faith that we're all on. And that's the process of continuing to be saved. And then the final part of that would take place at death when the Bible says that we are to be absent from the body and to be present with Christ. And I have been saved. So in the beginning, my spirit has been made perfect. In the journey, my soul is being, is being strengthened and being developed and I'm being disciplined. And then at the very end, my body is then saved. And then Christ's return, and we receive what God calls his resurrected body. And so, but this is where we all begin. We all begin with the process when he says, I will bring you out. And every one of us in our lives, at different points and times in our lives, are in some kind of bondage. We're in some kind of something that's holding us back. Whether we're bound by our actions and our choices of the past or we're even bound by the way we think today, we all face that in some way, shape, or form at some point in time in our life. And the devil, who is a very real, very, very real thing, his goal is to keep you as a slave to that bondage. That's his goal. In the original story, Pharaoh kept the children of Israel in bondage. He kept them there in three ways. And so I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you three ways that Pharaoh kept them in bondage and then hopefully relate them to your life today. So in the original way, in the original story, the devil holds them in three ways and he does the same thing today. The very first way is they were forced as slaves to make bricks. One of the things you got when you came in was a note sheet that you had some blanks on it. Um, you can fill that out and track with us if you like and help you to, if you want to study it later or maybe it helps you to learn today. But they were forced as slaves to make bricks. And this is, a, actually, this is a fairly common practice even today. You can find slave labor in third world, third world nations where they are literally making bricks still today. And so this is what the Bible says in John chapter 8 Verse 34 and 35, I'm using the message version a few times today just simply because I like the way it speaks it. But this is the words of Jesus. Jesus said, and these are the paraphrased words of Jesus. He said, I tell you most solemnly that anyone who chooses a life of sin is trapped in a dead-end life and is, in fact, a slave. A slave is a transient who can't come and go at will. So he says, anybody who chooses to live in this life of sin, who chooses to, to do everything that they want to do for themselves in spite of what they know to be true, 
they are, they are in this place where they are trapped. And you've probably said to yourself, I feel trapped. Has anybody ever said that before? Whether it be in a relationship or in a job or just in your life, I just feel trapped where I am right now. That is, that is literally a, a, a device and a tool of the enemy to keep you right where you are and keep you from making the impact that he desires for you to make. Because believe it or not, regardless of where you've come from, regardless of what your choices in your life looks like the moment you walked in, God has a plan for your life that is far greater greater than anything you can ever imagine. And if you think, well, I don't know, Pastor, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. In a few moments, you'll find that to be true because I'll share a little bit of my story with you. And you'll, at the end of that, you'll look at me and say, wow, if God can do that with him, he certainly can do something with me. And so we'll get there in a few moments. But that is exactly what the devil wants to do. You have probably said, I feel trapped a moment several times. You're trapped by debt. You're trapped by relationships. You're trapped by the expectations of others. Anybody say amen to that? Other people put some expectations on you. Let me help you out. You've received them. Let me help you for a moment. Don't put them on somebody. And if you have expectations for them, do them a favor. Let them know. Let them know what their expectations are. Let them know. Let there be clarity in that relationship. With my children, they know what their expectations are. My son knows that you're going to do the yard work when I ask you to do the yard work. He knows it's an expectation. He still doesn't like the expectation. He still has a less than favorable response to the expectation, but he knows that it's an expectation. The most dangerous thing you can have in your life is expectations placed on you that you don't know anything about because you can't meet those expectations. Same thing happens in every relationship. And so we have this, this we're, we're actually trapped by the expectations. And I don't know whatever it may be for you. It could be guilt. It could be fear. It could be anger. It could be bitterness, bad habits. Maybe you don't, you don't, have, enough, you don't have enough margin or space in your schedule for Jesus. But these are all things that trap us. So the, the Pharaoh kept them in bondage, forcing the slaves to make bricks. They were trapped in what they were doing. Another way he kept them in bondage was by murdering innocent children. He would murder innocent children. Throughout history, the devil has always tried to kill the children. Why? Because children represent potential. And the devil is really after to try to kill and destroy potential, bring death to potential. That's what, that's what we see in children. I mean, you look at your children when they're young and, and you're, you have dreams for them that, that are astronomical. They can accomplish anything. And we teach our kids that and we pour that into our children. And it's really only until they live life and been beaten down by life that eventually they say, oh, this is the best that I can do. But that's not how they start. They start, I mean, I don't know about your, your kids, but kids start saying, I'm going to be an astronaut and then I'm going to be a baseball player. And then I'm going to drive a, a race car. And they've got all these dreams. And it's like none of those things have anything to do with each other. But they don't care. They're just dreaming. There's so much potential in their life. And I don't know about you, but I'm the person that that's, that's the way that I'm wired. I see potential. I see potential in people so much. Just the way God wired me, I see so much potential in people, so much so that I will, I will gladly do anything and everything possible to put somebody in position to be successful and realize their full potential, even if that means there's some public failures. Because let me tell you, I have publicly failed many times. And so I'm okay with that. As long as that failure catapults me forward in what God wants me to do. As long as I'm learning and growing, 
I'll make a lot of mistakes, but I don't often make the same mistake more than three times. Y'all thought I was going to say make the same mistake twice. No, no, no. I ain't that smart. Takes me two or three times to figure it out. My wife was here, and instead of teaching kids next door, she'd be, you'd hear her shout amen. But that's what he does. He used the death and killing of innocent children to destroy potential. Anyone who, as a child, who displayed the ability to do something great was murdered. That's what the devil's trying to do to you. He's trying to keep you in that trapped place because he is so afraid of what you might accomplish. Pharaoh stole their future, keeping them from their potential. And I don't know about you, but some of you might feel this way. You've asked, why do I feel so unsatisfied? Why do I feel empty? And I'll tell you this, the greatest tragedy in life is not death. It's going your entire life without knowing your purpose. Death for me is victory. My perspective on death is, I, don't get me wrong, I'm not ready to go. I've got a lot to do that I want to accomplish in this life. But when that day comes, if it's today or if it's 10 years from now or if 25, 50 years from now, 60 years from now, death for me is victory. But had I lived those years without knowing my purpose and not fulfilling my purpose, that would be worse. Matter of fact, there's an old African proverb that Mark Twain actually uh, penned in a, in a book. He said, the, the, the two greatest days in your life are not the day you were born and the day you died, the day you were born and the day you realize why you were born. There's just power in that. There's so much power in purpose. So in this moment, in this space that we're in right here, I want to share just a tad bit about my story, and I'll try to keep it brief because it is a crazy and very long story. But to make it short, I grew up like many, no church, wasn't a part of my life, wasn't a part of my lifestyle. I grew up to a, as, as a military brat. My dad was in the United States Army. He served for 20 some odd years, 27 years, I believe it was. And he was a hardcore man. And, I, and, I, and we, had, we had a lot of struggles and a lot of issues in life. And today, he is an unbelievable friend of mine, and I love him to death. But it was a struggle. A struggle with him being a young parent, not knowing how to necessarily how to parent, and me then becoming a young te- being a teenager who is 13. You can use your imagination. So my parents would divorce right around that time, and I went nuts. Because the, the, the emblem of, of, of discipline, and it was a firm hand of discipline, was gone. And so I decided, I get to run things now. And I tried. And I did for a while. And my mom, bless her heart and soul, I love her. She is my, she's my greatest cheerleader, and I am a mama's boy. No doubt. For, I'll be 44 years old this, this week, and I will still be a mama's boy when I go visit or when she comes visit. I will sit with my mama and put my head on her shoulder, and that's just me. I'm a mama's boy, and I love it that way. And she did everything the best she could as a single mom, and, and then I inherited a stepfather who has been a father to me, and he inherited a situation he didn't necessarily sign up for either. But I would then fast forward, I would, I would become 
heavily involved in drugs and drinking and partying and this lifestyle that no one knew about. I was able to hide it so well. But it just kept leading me in this path of nowhere. I joined the United States Army and the following the footsteps of my father. And let's just say, long story short, that didn't really work out well for me. Wasn't exactly my plan. I got out of the military and I did a whole lot of other things in between trying to figure out life and failing in every, pretty much every last one of them. But the one thing that I was very successful in pretty regularly was getting drunk. I was pretty good at that and getting high. I was really good at those two things. And that was my life. Every day that was my life. Had some friends come over to my house one day and say, hey, let's go out to eat. I was like, no, I'm tired. Worked 16 hours a day. I was a framing carpenter as one of my Dead-end job after dead-end job after dead-end job. Nothing wrong with being a framing carpenter, but it wasn't, wasn't what I was supposed to do. So for me, I didn't like it. I liked it, but didn't like it. Does that make sense? I don't know. may not. But I had a 16-hour day. I was exhausted. I was like, no. They forced me pretty much to go out. I ended up going to a local bar. And uh, after about my seventh or eighth beer, I was finally loose and relaxed and it's bad because I could drink a whole lot more than that. And so I'd spin around in my chair, and I'd look out on a dance floor, and then I saw this, this woman. I was like, whoa. Found my date for the night. But for whatever reason, I had a difficulty talking to her. I never had that problem before in my life, but I, I had it this time. And so I, started talk, so I finally got the, the, the guts enough to do the most cliched thing that anybody could do, and I sent her a drink. For real? Waitress went by. This is from that guy over there. And she looked and was like, eh, okay. She took the drink. The rest is history because that same person would become my wife. But before she would become my wife, she would take me to church. She grew up in church. She was kind of away from that life for the moment, doing her own thing. After a couple of weeks, she's like, I- I've got to get myself back into church and do what, God's, do, do, do what I know God wants me to do. And I had like literally no predisposition to church. I had never been, understand, never been. I was 23 years old, had never been to church. So I said, I'll go. I went to this crazy church. I called it the Chandelier Swinging Church. These folks was nuts. It was in a gym. It was being set up and tear down. It was connected to the school. She was, a, she was an elementary school teacher in a Christian school. It's connected to the school. I went to church. These folks was crazy. Worship's happening. This guy got out of the chair, and he's running laps around this gym, screaming hallelujah. And I'm like, y'all is nuts. Some, some woman over to my right somewhere started shouting in tongues real loud, and I'm like, I understood the passage of scripture when it said these people, when, the, when, the, when Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit fell. He said, oh, these men are not drunk as it would seem. I understood that scripture real well because they looked drunk to me. I mean, it was just this craziness of all these things thrown at me. And then this woman sitting, I think, in front of me comes up to me and says, I just want to let you know that God's called you to the pulpit. I was like, no way. Well, my first thought was, what is a pulpit? I don't even know what that is. She called you to preach. I was like, ha, ha, yeah. I don't even know who God is. What are you talking about? So uh, I, I, needless to say, I told, 
my beautiful girlfriend at the time, I was not coming back to that place. Them folks is nuts. And she's like, well, I rededicated my life to Christ. That's where I'm going to go to church, and you're going to come if you want to date me. And, of course, I had all the game in the world. I was like, okay, that's what you think. You're going to date me, and I'm still not going. We fast forward and get to a Saturday, and she says, I'll see you tomorrow. I was like, told you I'm not going. She's like, okay, it's been real. Bye. And you get that feeling like, oh, girl ain't playing. It's like, she's serious right now. Like, all the game in the world ain't getting me into this one. <sighs> so I got good and hammered that night. Showed up to church hungover because I figured if I had to go, the only way I was dealing with those folks is hungover. Y'all think, I, I told you, if God can do something with me, I would, at least you're not, unless you might be in church drunk today. And if you are, welcome. We're glad you're here. <laughs> but the reality is, this is how I came. And that's the God that we serve. That's the Jesus that, that died for us, was the one that would die for the one desi desiring to sit in church hungover. Whether he was there for God or there for the woman made no difference to him. He was there. That's why I tell people that story, that's a setup. God set me up. That's how that's nothing but a setup. He had to come get me because I surely wasn't coming to him. Fast forward, so I'd give my life to Jesus after about five weeks of looking at these people with the most judgmental eyes possible. I'd give my life to Jesus, and lo and behold, I'd become one of those dancing fools who loves Jesus so much that he'll dance in the middle of a grocery store if necessary. I'd become that. Fast forward a year and a half later, I was asked to be the junior high youth pastor. And I said to him, sure, I'll do it. I was on fire for God. I'll do anything. If you were told me jump off a bridge for Jesus, I'm jumping. They said, do this. And I said, yes, okay. My wife was like, what did you just agree to? They're junior high school kids. Let me tell you what I've learned about junior high school kids. Man, that's an interesting creation. The fool, most foolish creation of all creations of the junior high school kids. But I would, we had this parade, and I, we, we, in this parade, we'd parade across the stage, and it would show all the ministries available to be plugged into at the church. And you had the tech team, and you had the softball team, and the youth ministry, and the junior high ministry, and, and the women's ministry. And oh my gosh, this was a big church that had a lot of ministries. And I have got my, my sign that said H2O, and it was here to overcome junior high youth. And it was all glittered up, and... I was all excited. I'm standing in this line, and next to me was the intercessory prayer ministry. And the woman literally walked up to me, and she looked me in the face, and she said, I told you so. And I was like, excuse me? And I knew who she was. Excuse me? She had forgotten that a year and a half before that, my day, first day in church, that she said, God's called you to preach. And here I am holding my sign that says, hey, I preach. I didn't do a very good job. I was a horrible preacher. I mean, I was bad. I, I, I still have my notes, because back then, I'm, I'm, I started preaching when there wasn't iPads or smartphones. All my, no, all my sermons were handwritten, and I still have some of them. I won't let you read them, because they were bad. It's like, man, you, you preach this? I, I'm just thankful some of those kids are still serving Jesus, because, man, some of that stuff I preached was a mess. But this is how Jesus takes you, just the way you are. All of your sin, all of your sickness, all of your mess, and he says, come on and come to me. I'm going to make it beautiful. And that's what he does. He loves us so much that he takes us just the way we are, yet he loves us too much to leave us there. 
And here I am now, 21 years later, still preaching badly. Actually, that must not be true because some of y'all are here. But I'm still preaching the gospel, still serving Jesus, still making mistakes every single day. See, the devil would try to keep me bound by my mistakes, by my past especially, because let me tell you, there's nothing more debilitating to a believer than someone stuck in their past. I can't do that. I'm not good. Let me tell you something. I was a wreck of a human being, and I only shared the low lights. It gets uglier than what I shared. gets a whole lot uglier than what I shared. But God brought me to this place because the devil tried to destroy me and the potential that God saw in me. And this is how Pharaoh kept them bound. The last way that I'm going to share with you how he kept them bound before we get into some great and practical things that we can do to walk in what God has for us is that he required the children of Israel to collect their own straw. So listen, not only did he hold them in bondage and, just, and tell them to make bricks, not only did he go and then kill their children, he wouldn't even provide the materials to do it. You had to go and get your own materials to make the bricks for my palace and for my kingdom. Oh, and I'm not going to pay you anything. I'm just going to hold you this way. For 400 years, they did this to the children of Israel. Slavery wasn't enough. He made them get up, collect straw. Adding to the pile and the extra work of already being a slave. Have you ever felt overloaded by life? Have you ever just looked to heaven and said, I just can't do this? God, I don't know what, and you heard somebody, you heard somebody once say, well, you know what? God won't give you more than you can handle. I want to punch that person in the mouth because the reality is that's not even biblical truth. The truth actually is you will have so much more than you can handle. You will be absolutely overloaded by life, and that is truth. However, there is this guy, his name is Jesus, and he's the one who alleviates that pressure and that being overloaded. With him, you can handle anything. The problem is we don't include him often, time, often enough. We think, oh, I can handle this. Oh, I've got kids. Okay, I'll just, again, I'll use my own life because I don't want to preach yours. Maybe it's similar, but I have three kids. Oh, my son's got to be, he's got to travel basket, bas- baseball game today. Sure. Let's go. We're going to be at the baseball field. But as soon as baseball's over, I got to jam food down his throat and run him all the way across town because he's got basketball practice. And that's just my son. A daughter who plays volleyball and travels all over to play volleyball. I have another daughter who does gymnastics and tumbling. And all these kids are heavily involved in school. And oh, by the way, they're heavily involved in church. And I'm going all over the place. And then somebody's like, Pastor, I really, really need to talk to you. I'm like, whew. Okay. And then my thought becomes, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Anybody ever say that before? I'll just get sleep when I'm dead. That's, that's when overload starts to take place. But there's this, this thing, this person, this relationship with Jesus that says, bring me. Come to me, all who are weary. He says, lay down your burdens, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that doesn't mean that life is easy. It just means that when we follow Jesus and we place him in the center where he belongs, life just seems to work. 
then if you're overwhelmed and overloaded and stressed out to the max, there's probably a good chance that Jesus is somewhere on the edge and not in the center. Location is very important when it comes to Jesus. You say, I'm tired. I can't keep up the pace. I'm stressed out. I'm stretched to the limit. Patience level is so low and you get angry easily. Am I only preaching to myself right now? Thank you. You make me feel better and I'm not, the, I'm not the only one who's messed up. Anybody ever just get irritated because you're irritated? And when someone says, what's wrong? I don't know. I'm just irritated. That means you're a little overwhelmed. You're a little overloaded by life. Let's, let's kind of reset, put Jesus back in the center and see what happens then. Burnout doesn't come from how much you do. It comes from doing things that have no purpose. And not taking care of your walk with Jesus. And you might be here today and you say, I'm a little tired. I'm a little worn out. Maybe on the edge you feel like giving up. Just want you to know I've been praying for you. Whether I've known you or not, whether I knew you were coming here or not, that's exactly how I've been praying. And all that is the enemy, your enemy, trying to keep you in bondage. He's trying to trap you, leave you empty, leave you exhausted, feel like, just like you feel today. Well, if that's how you feel, then today is your day. This is your moment. I don't believe any of you are here by accident. I believe God knew you would be here today, even if you didn't necessarily know. But that's what Easter's all about. That's what the resurrection of Christ is all about. He conquered hell. He conquered death. He conquered all these things so that he could live in you and you could conquer hell and you could conquer death and you could conquer exhaustion and overloaded and stressed and worn out and angry and frustrated and bitter and you name it. I don't care what you are. Put that in there. That's why Jesus came. That's why he suffered. That's why he died. That's why he rose from the grave. He even said in John chapter 10 verse 10, the thief's purpose is to steal, to kill, and to, to destroy. That's the devil. He comes to steal. He comes to kill. He comes to destroy. He says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Please don't get that scripture twisted and said, my purpose is to make you rich. That's not the gospel. You could get that kind of gospel on TV somewhere, but that's not the true gospel. He didn't come to make you rich, but he came to give you a rich and satisfying life. That's full of love. That's full of grace. That's full of mercy. That's what Easter is about. That's what this thing we call resurrection is all about. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Again, the message version, it says, It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, He'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. Wow, I don't know about you, but that is like the most encouraging thing I could hear all day, that with God living in me, I'm alive like Christ. The resurrection of Jesus gives you the power to close the gap between your life, the life you're living, and the life you could live. He gives you your life back. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven 
and the future starts now. It doesn't start when you get there. It starts now. And that leads us into this place of these four cups. And I'm going to wrap up my message in the next few minutes. And I'm so thankful that you are here today and that God has led you here. It's an honor to have you with us today. But going back to Exodus chapter 6 and verse number 6, he said, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out. They were enslaved. And he said, I will bring you out. Two things he said in that passage of scripture. I am the Lord. That was a declaration. It was the proper name of God. As a matter of fact, it was the name spoken that when his name was mentioned, all of heaven and all of hell stood at attention because that name was mentioned. This isn't just, oh, I'm God and I, be- I guess I believe in God. No, this was the proper name for God. This was, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord God. And when he said that, everyone stood and everybody looked and said, oh, goodness, what's going on? He's announced his presence. And then he said, I will bring you out. The same phrase, the same word is actually means to be emancipated and to escape more literally, it means, be, it, that's, it means to be emancipated and to escape. It's connected to, the, to, to this word becoming beautiful and fair and neat and clean. And it's all for a purpose. All of this is done for a purpose. The purpose is so that you ultimately inherit the kingdom of God with Jesus as your Savior. But even more than that, the purpose is that you walk this beautiful life that he has for you today. And beauty isn't perfect. Beauty is nowhere near perfect. When you accept Christ and you walk with Christ, you journey with Christ, you come back to Christ, you sacrifice certain things for Christ, it's not perfect. It gets hard. It gets, it gets so difficult. Sometimes you're like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. That, I'll take you back to the thought that that's the enemy in your life trying to trip you up and take you away and destroy the potential that God sees in you. So worship team, come and get, up, get set if you would. I'm going to wrap up our message with a few practical notes, some couple of practical things that you can do. This is the way I like to preach. I like to preach the gospel, preach the truth, but give you some practical points that you can work with. At the end of our time, we're going to seal this together with communion. Um, I've chosen to do it a little bit differently This time I'll give you instruction in just a moment. But let's make this practical. And as we do, we have to ask a couple of questions. The first one is, how did we get here? Ever ask that question, how did I get here? The reality is you just drifted. It doesn't seem like that's some deep revelationary truth that you just drifted, but we've become so busy We didn't mean for the time to get away. I mean, how many of your kids have ever said, I lost track of time? I hear it it all the time. I told you to be in at 10. It's 10, 10, 10, 15. I just lost track of time. It happens. We just drift. We lose track of where we are. We lose track of the time that we're in. We just drift. You know, maybe someone led you away. Maybe you had a bad experience. Maybe you went to church and the idea of religion turned you off because maybe somebody didn't welcome you 
because of the way you looked or the way you acted or whatever the case may be. Let me tell you, I was that person. I walked into church hungover, and I was greeted by this man. His name, literally, I'm not even kidding, was Joe Cool. He said, I was, I was his best man. I ended up being his best man at his wedding. He's 20 years older than me. But God knit us together so closely in the very beginning. Every single time I'd come to church, he would weave his way through 400 people to come and greet me. Hung over and all. I could deal with anything if I feel that way when I walk into a room. So I don't know what your religion was like, what your choice, church choice was like. If you Maybe you were like me and you never had church. Maybe you're mad at God because something happened. Understanding how you got to where you are is the best thing you can do to getting away from it. So then the first question is, how do we get here? The second question is, how do we get out? It's in the first promise that God has to bring us out. How do we, like the nation of Israel did, the children of Israel did in the Passover, how do we drink from that first cup of the Passover? This is how you do it. It's, it's, it's actually really simple. Just make the move. There's this thing called repentance. You've got to make a decision that you're tired of where you are and it's time to make the move. Whether that's making your very first step towards Jesus as your Savior, maybe it's making a step to come back to Him as your Savior. Maybe, maybe you've been serving Christ for a long time and you just kind of made it about you and your schedule and your agenda and your desire and your will. Maybe your move is to say, it's really not about me. But make a move. We joked about it earlier, Sean. We joked about it earlier. Sean and I coached baseball together. That's how God put us together. And, and I've walked with Sean, Sean through some challenging times in his life. And we joked about this earlier. We, we coached baseball. And what do we tell? Just throw a strike. Seriously, just throw strikes. Ball four, ball four. Ball, just throw a strike. Please throw strikes. And we just keep saying that over and over as if it's making a difference. And I remember my son, because he's a smart aleck and smart, both. Dangerous combination to be a smart aleck and smart. He's like, Dad, what do you think? You think I won't, don't want to throw a strike? Huh. Didn't really think of it that way. You think I'm not trying to throw a strike? Sometimes you just have to keep on doing something, keep on persevering until God break, until you have a breakthrough. Until you've pushed through what's going on in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 and 18 says, Therefore, come out from among unbelievers. Separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you. And I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That sounds a lot like what he said in the beginning. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out. I will be your father. Come on out. Truth is, you can't be in two places at once time to move. It's time to change directions. It's time to repent. Number two, you've got to let go of everything. You've got to let go of your past. You've got to let go of your decisions, your choices. You've got to surrender what, you're, what you want to happen 
to Jesus and allow him to make what he wants to happen. Because let me tell you, that's a difficult thing to do. Even after serving God for some years, I had to surrender some things to him that I really wasn't wanting to surrender. Loved the idea of preaching, but didn't love the idea of preaching as vocation because I had a good job and made good money. I'm like, no, I'm good, God. I'll just keep doing it this way. He's like, that's not how I asked you to do it. I just surrender my will, my desire to him. And let me tell you, I'm happier today than I've ever been in my life. Why? Because he's actually in control. Third one, the last one is this. I want to wrap it up. You've got to commit your life. It's not enough just to come out. You have to pursue something else. A lot of, this is where people miss it when it comes to Jesus. Yes, the idea of, of Jesus and salvation and heaven sounds beautiful and wonderful, and I need that in my life, and they, and they come out. And they stand on the porch. I'm good. Ever been standing on the porch of the patio and someone, hey, come over here and shoot some hoops. I'm good. We stand on the porch. We never leave the porch. It's not enough just to come out. That's the start. But you've got to step into something. What does that look like practically? Maybe it looks like you've got to start just going to church. Build that as a discipline. That's become such an undisciplined thing in our nation today. People just don't go to church, and I, do, I can't comprehend that. This is the body of Christ. This is where you're encouraged. This is where you're filled up. This is where you're prepared to take on the world. Yet, and you know what? I'm good. we got to commit to something. We've got to come out. We've got to commit to something. Re Romans chapter 6, verse 19. Last passage I'll share with you for today. It says, because of the weakness of your human nature, I am using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all of this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which have led even deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. This is teaching. You're coming out from all of this. Now it's time to step into something else. It's a journey that you're on. Don't feel like when you make a mistake that the world is coming to an end. Because it's not. And if you find yourself in a good Bible-believing and Bible-preaching and Bible-living church, you won't feel that way. If you don't have one of those, then I welcome you to be here because you won't feel that way here. No one's going to condemn you for a bad decision. No one's going to condemn you for making a mistake. It's part of life. I've been serving Jesus 21 years. I'm still making mistakes. It's a part of life. As long as you're willing to hear it and move from it and step into something, God has you.